My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Guys, welcome back to our next round of going through the Bible verse by verse. It is a pleasure to have you with us, especially shout out to our first international listener all the way from Luxembourg. Thank you for listening. Thank you for checking this out. It was very pleasing when I saw that show up as I was going through the analytics. It's like, wow, I've never talked to anyone from Luxembourg before. This is so fun. And I hope that we continue to reach other people, not only in these United States, but across the entire world. I'm glad you guys are enjoying this. Thank you again for all your feedback. Thank you again for the kind words, for continuing to share everything here. I do need to talk some business real quick in that uh, to those of you who are listening to other things outside of here, we are starting, and I'll mention who we is in a second, Anazal, which is going to be a group, a podcasting network of fellow Christians who are just bringing their stuff out there. You've got the whole church. You've got systematic ecology, my seminary life, so on and so forth. We're trying to get some other people on board as well for all of this. And I've got to say, it's nice to be a part of something like this. Uh, the changes, uh, they're happening already because now I'm going through Captivate instead of Anchor like I was doing before. Uh, it's just part of the group thing there. It'll just be a very wonderful experiment. We're starting here, and I'm very grateful to be a part of that, like I said. So doesn't really pertain too much to everything there, to what you guys have to care about. If anything does change from that, I will let you know so you can expect it. So we will be heading into the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 8 today. We're starting with verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward... He went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Luke, as a writer, as a historian, showcases a focus more on women than any other gospel that exists today. And it's astonishing how much he brings it up to show that this gospel is not just for a group of men. It is not just for a group of people at one point in time. It is for all people, men and women, who across time and space, will serve under Lord Jesus. And these specific women here served and followed Jesus more so than a lot of others. They did not come to this because their husbands believed. They didn't come to Jesus because their fathers told them to do it. They did this because they desired a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is amazing. It is astonishing. It is a wonderful thing. They were making their own choices in a society, especially then, that did not give them much freedom. And yet what the gospel does is it frees us from oppression. Now, obviously, there are going to be differing opinions on what women can and can't do in the ministry. Your more ultra-conservatives will say women can't even be involved at all. 
And then you have your ultra-liberals who will say that they should be pastors and priests of the whole congregation. Now, what do I believe? Well, I held it off long enough. I believe that Scripture calls women to be in ministry just like it calls men to be in ministry. And they must serve Christ faithfully, but that they are never called to be the primary leaders of the church, as that role was meant for men alone. And I know it's a hot-button issue. You get cries of a bigotry of being sexist, so on and so forth. But when I read Scripture, I don't see that call for women to be pastors. And I have talked with several women who do who lead churches. And I've had to be immensely respectful to them. So it doesn't sound like I'm you're talking about them behind their back and saying, well, I'll be pleasant to you to your face. But when it's my time to talk, I'm just going to trash you. No, never do that. We can have that fundamental disagreement and still love one another. And this is a huge disagreement on my part. And that's okay. That's just where we are. I know there's some people in this audience right now who have family members, like I do, where they serve in a pastoral role. And guess what? There's still love. We don't snipe at each other behind our backs. We don't say, oh, she believes this. Well, I don't have to listen to what she has to say. No, we treat each other with respect and love. And that's what we are supposed to do. Now, why do I feel so big about this? Well, my smoking gun for why, other than every time Paul brings it up, why women shouldn't be the pastor or priest or what have you for the church as the head of that church. My smoking gun is the absence of a woman amongst the 12. And you say, well, that's just their culture, you know? They just didn't want to have anyone there. But it was only Jewish men, like no foreigners among them either. So you say foreigners can't do it? They know. That's because they came directly to the Jews first. And the Jewish people consisted about 50% men and women, like most cultures. It's not always the same number across the board, but they're pretty similar. And the absence of a woman amongst the 12 is pretty jarring. And I think that's because Jesus doesn't want women to lead in ministry that way. He did not deny them himself. He did not keep them away from ministry, as we see in this chapter here. But they have a specific call elsewhere, just like men have a specific call elsewhere. And I think that Jesus, being who we've seen him before and all this, who doesn't care about what the Pharisees think, doesn't care about the Roman officials think, or the people around him, if he wanted women to be in that leadership position, he would have had a woman amongst us well. And I know that's not good enough for everyone, and that's fine. I'm willing to have the discussion in love. Let's have that talk. It'll be fun. But moving on, we also see Mary Magdalene brought up here. And there is a ton of really bad stuff brought against her as time has gone on. She has been said to be this false person who was Jesus's wife and they had children. There's a sacred bloodline. If you go to your Da Vinci Code kind of way, which by the way is uh, ripped off of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, or whatever it was. It's not a new idea. It's happened before. It'll happen again. Someone will think this happened, but it didn't. Jesus didn't come to get married. He had no children of his own. That was not his purpose on this earth to establish an earthly kingdom. His was a heavenly kingdom starting on this earth. Mary Magdalene was a part of that. As someone who 
was a part of the of the fellowship who helped other people. She wasn't more than likely. She wasn't a sinful woman from the previous chapter. Like some people like to conflate her with. Some people also say that she might be the woman in John. And of course, there's a good, I should have mentioned this before. If you hear a buzzing in the background, that is because the AC units have been brought back on at the uh, dorms here. And there's nothing I can do to stop that. I don't know how to separate the audio of them in the background. So hopefully you can't hear them and I'm talking about nothing. (sighs) So that's that. But as far as Mary Magdalene is concerned, she is someone who saw her need for a savior. She had seven demons possessing her at one point in time. And Jesus removed them. She recognized who she was as a sinner, then followed after him. We should do the same. Moving on to verses 4 through 15. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in the parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. That is from Isaiah 6, by the way, if you're keeping track. Yes. Uh, Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. When I first read this for these verses forever ago, I used to think this was a story of how one group of people didn't come to faith and then three others did. As I've grown up and my understanding has increased, I see this as a story of how three groups of people don't believe and one group does. That narrow path, which is the final path here. Here we see Jesus laying out beginnings of understanding of how to evangelize to others. This is unprecedented outside of John's ministry, outside of Jonah preaching to the Ninevites, or the eventual, we see some Egyptians join the Israelites at the very beginning of the Exodus. This is unprecedented because Jesus is telling us to go and talk to people all over the world. He's telling the Jewish people at the time, to talk to everyone, to bring them the faith. And that is mind-blowing. For over a thousand years, this message has been meant for one group of people. And now it is for everyone. Now we see, let's divide these groups up. The first group are those who hear the gospel and just reject it outright. 
They just have this inability to desire God above themselves. And guess what? Everyone's been in that group at some point in time. We did not always respond positively the first time we heard about the gospel, even as children. So I don't want to give that up. I don't want to be that. I want to be whatever I want to be. I want to be cool. I want to be this. And if I do that, if I become a Christian, well, it'll be taken away from me. That could be right. But maybe it needs to. This is a group of people at the end of the day, no matter how many times they hear the gospel, there's just that spiritual veil over their faces. And they'll refuse to believe, no matter what evidence you present, no matter how well-crafted your argument is, it's just not for them. And I hate to hear that, but as someone who doesn't believe in universalism, they've made their choice and they're going to lie with it. And that means hell for eternity, as much as I hate saying that out loud. I don't want it to be true. When I read my scripture, that's where it's at. Our next group here is full of those who kind of, at first, they kind of seem like they may be Christians. Like, oh, they said the prayer, you know, they're making some changes in their life. But the moment that adversity comes, they flee. Notice they use the word believe here. Believe does not mean total faith in. People believe in a lot of stuff. People believe that we never landed on the moon. People believe that the earth is hollow. People believe in all sorts of crazy things. But just believing in something isn't enough. Having faith is. And these people believe with their lips, maybe with some of their thoughts, but they don't fully come in and they flee and leave. The third group here, we see at first their belief is shallow. But the moment the concerns of this world enters their lives, they say, hey, oh, oh you're hanging out with those Christians? Well, you can't hang out with us anymore. Well, I don't want to lose you. And they go to those friends. Or say, They'll begin something in a job situation and they'll pretend they know nothing about it. They never had the faith to begin with. So they're really giving up nothing in that sense. Just going about their lives. To them, this initial belief is just some kind of fad or phase. And then they move on. Don't let that be you. This is life-changing. Life-changing. You cannot hear the gospel, and just totally give up on it if you are his, which is the final group here. They're the ones with saving faith. They believe truly and accurately about who God is and what he desires from them, no matter how difficult things get in life. We're going to have doubts, like we said before. We're going to have times when we're going to let our sin take control, and that's what we're seeking after, and it's not God. But at the end of the day, When we hear that call to repent, we will return. We will ask forgiveness and we will be with him. And we realize we never left him. He was there the whole time. We're just the ones who turned our back. That is that group that is going to be the ones who have run the race and they will be with God forever and eternity. Now we go to verses 16 through 18. No one after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand 
so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will, page flip, not be made manifest, nor is any anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Guys, the word of God and the love of God can never be smothered into non-existence in the life of a true Christian. There's a reason Jesus preaches this after he just used that parable there. There is a response we have to have, and that is to follow him. At best, we may be able to cover these things up for a bit. And that's really at worst in that circumstance. That's when your coworkers ask, oh, what'd you do Sunday? And you say, you want to say you went to church, but what, what if he doesn't like that? What if she doesn't like that? And we say, oh, I was out fishing or whatever. That can be temporarily smothered. But eventually along the way, we must be bold. We must reach out and proclaim who Jesus is. God's light must be seen so that the world can see their need for a, a savior. We see also, we have all been entrusted with a lot on our plates when it comes to seeking out the lost and leading them to Christ. It is going to be difficult, but we have been given more than we have ever deserved. And if we truly love our neighbors, we will do the same. Lest the blessings God offers freely are also taken away freely for our disobedience. Just don't hide who you are. Speak boldly. If you don't know how, reach out. Talk to the people around you. Talk to your pastors. Talk to your small group leaders. Talk to someone you trust who is seems to be stronger in the faith than you. And realize that's not a, that's not a terrible place to be in because it means you have room for growth. And we all do, but we're all in different stages. And that's perfectly fine. But the worst thing we can do is to remain in what stage of life we're in and smother our light and cover it so that the world can't see who we really are and who Jesus is. Move on from there to verses 19 through 21. Then his mother, this being Jesus, and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is one of those messages you hear at first, but wait, doesn't Jesus care about them? Like, no, you're missing the point. Family is important. I say that with someone who loves his family, despite all our many faults. God can bless us with our family, or even there are some of us who see family as a curse. Either way, their whims and desires are nothing compared to the love of God. Family cannot save us from ourselves. Only Christ can save us from ourselves. We love our family. We are told to honor our father and mother. But the best way to do that is to follow God first. If there's a parent out there you have, or a guardian, what have you, that is telling you to do something you know is wrong, it is better to honor them by disobeying them. And I know that sounds like a contradiction, and it seems like that at first, but the best way to honor your parent is to not let sin persevere, is to not let sin abide. We abide in Christ. 
who is able to overcome sin. Family can be a crutch. It can also be an immense blessing. Jesus loved his mother and his siblings. He loved them immensely. We see that at the cross where he tells John to take care of his mom. But if he didn't care about them, he wouldn't have said to do that. But they are not as important as his relationship with God. Our spiritual relationship with God should always take precedent over the physical matters of this world, even if that involves family. Once again, Jesus didn't despise his family. He didn't hate his family. He loved them. And the best way to love them was to show his love for the other people around him. He needed to preach. He needed to teach because those people were lost. And eventually we see along the way, at least James uh, and Jude as well, out of Jesus' family, do come to faith later on. They are not there yet. Next up, we have verses 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? (laughs) Still don't get it. They still don't get it. How long have they been with him? And they don't get it. And we say, wow, those disciples, they were so silly and foolish. Like if I had been there, I would have believed immediately. Well, maybe you would have. But I guarantee most of us in that same position would have been the exact same thing they did. They lost focus on who they're working with. They've seen Jesus work miracles time and time again. And know that with a word, he could calm the waves. He could say it without a word. But because they haven't fully placed their faith in Jesus, they are led astray by the concerns of this world. They're like uh, that ship that James talks about, just rocked by the waves, not ever going anywhere. Because they have no firm foundation yet. They don't have that cornerstone of Jesus in their hearts. And we get the same way even when we have that cornerstone, because sometimes we forget to look there. But we also see Jesus is merciful, and he is strong enough, once again, to command nature and proves this in a very different way than before by making that storm cease. He can do so much more for us in the tempests of life, but we must remain firm in him, regardless of what's going on, even if he chooses to let that storm remain around us longer than we care for. I hate that those words came out of my mouth because I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that out loud. I want to be able to say, Lord, just get me out of this situation, please. And then it'd be gone. But that's abusing God's authority and God's power for our own ends. If that's where our heart is at, we've got to say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. And that's how I've had to learn to pray these past couple of years, is by adding that at the end of what I say and then meaning it. God will take care of us. We've got to be ready for when he does and when it seems like he's not. We'll go on from there to verses 26 through 39. 
Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged them to let him in, let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down a steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found a man with from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So we got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. That was a lot of verses to show one of the most tremendous stories. I'm going to say that every time Jesus does a miracle. I, I just, it's tremendous. It's miraculous. Literally miraculous. His command over the spiritual realm of things and this man's health is astonishing. Notice first, though, he specifically goes to a Gentile region to showcase his power to them. Easily, he could have just stayed and had his ministry within Israel, within Judea, and even Samaria and Galilee, but that'd be it. Like, he didn't have to go anywhere else, but he specifically went there. This is a lesson for the disciples. This is a lesson for us. There are no borders when it comes to Jesus Christ. He is here for humanity, no matter where we are. And at this point, he specifically tells this formerly demon-possessed man to tell others about him, which contradicts what he's done before, but you see why, because he doesn't have the spiritual baggage the cultural baggage that he would if he was in Judea or Galilee or what have you, where they would try to make him king. Here we see the exact opposite. They're afraid of him. But Jesus commands this man to go back to the people who have seen him for years, dressed with nothing, all these bruises all over his body, the wailing he would do as he was possessed, living amongst the dead. And he commands him to go to talk to these same people about who Jesus is and what he's done for him. That is astounding. That None of us, when we come to faith, want to go back to our Jerusalem. We don't want to go back to our, our families and friends because they know who we are and what we've done. Yet, we are commanded to do that 
anyways. To show the awesome changing power of Jesus Christ, who has said, I have made you new, go to them so that they can be made new as well. And the man obeys. Let us not forget, this man has for years been harmed by these many demons. He's been seen as a nuisance and a terror rather than a human being who needs help. He realizes the weight of what has happened and he asks if he can be around Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you? After all this suffering, all these years? But Jesus gives him the far harder task of returning to those who know him and what he used to be so that Jesus' name might be made great. Remember, guys, when Jesus calls us to go back home, he was rejected there too. And that's okay. If we're doing things right, we're going to get rejected for the right reasons. Make sure we get rejected for the right reasons. If we get rejected at all. If not, there'd be rejoicing for the people who will listen and be saved. Either way, be prepared. We also see in this passage that a lot has been made of this collective of demons known as Legion. I mean, you'll typically see uh, any character with like more than one personality or what have you in a story will be named Legion after this. But at the end of the day, regardless of how hell's hierarchies work, regardless of how powerful these demons were, they were nothing compared to the power of Jesus, who with next to nothing, no effort on his part, commands them and exercises them from this man. And at the same time, he has this strange compassion for them. They ask him, please don't send us out into the abyss. Send us into the pigs. And he does because he doesn't want them to suffer. Even despite their sin, despite knowing that more than likely from what we know of our theology and cosmology, they're never going to repent. And yet Jesus gives them a chance anyway by putting them in the pigs. But they can't resist their baser natures. And they send the pigs to their deaths, just like they eventually would have done to the man. Now, those of you who've read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, my favorite book in that is Paralandra, the middle book, where he goes to Venus before it's, a, it's an unfallen world. And you have uh, Ransom, our main character, being working for the side of God. And you've got, oh gosh, what's his name? It's like it starts with a W or something like Weston or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, who has been possessed by a devil and assumed to be the devil at some points in time and acting as like, good angel, bad angel on her shoulder of the first woman in this world. And we see in that book that because of just who this devil is, this demon is, their baser instincts, they've got to torture small animals. They've got to do something evil because that's just who they are. And the same thing is present here. They are so far gone, they do not want to seek repentance and never will. Thank God we do not have to say the same. We have been changed. There is hope for redemption. Until someone has died and died for good, there is hope for redemption. There is hope that they can change who they are. Let us learn from this and think of those people who need to hear this message of repentance and move on, as we will, to verses 40 through 56. 
Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had, who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Page flipped. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more." But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Here we see two remarkable stories of healing. One over a disease with no cure, and the other over the curse of death, which no man could overturn. Yet Jesus heals both as if they're nothing to him. Because guess what? They are nothing to him. We also see Jairus, in contrast to the centurion from earlier, comes to Jesus directly for aid. He doesn't send emissaries. He doesn't say, look, I know you can do this, Jesus, uh, if you just give the word. He comes to him directly. And guess what? Both of these actions are good. As they show the desperation of both men. Jairus wants to see his daughter alive and well. And he does everything in his power to assure this will come to pass by going directly to Jesus and begging him for help, which Jesus freely offers to him. Even when the news comes of his daughter's death and he sees the faithlessness of this man's fellows as they reveal their inability to see Jesus as, he tru as who he truly is. Jesus is there for us in the midst of troubles, in the midst of uncertainty, even after death, even after we've lost everyone dear to us. Jesus is there. Jairus was not wrong to seek out Jesus in this manner. You could say, surely the centurion had more faith. It's a different way of showing faith. He still went directly to the person he knew could solve the problem. Both are good examples of someone showing their faith. But also we see the immense faith of the woman with the blood disease, who has enough faith in Jesus' power to not seek an audience with him, 
but to merely touch his clothing, knowing that God would heal her with his power. Is this humility? Is this her just not having a good opinion of herself, not thinking she's worthy? Like there's a difference between not thinking that you're worthy and it, and a difference between having such low self-esteem, you see yourself as less than. I think this is her seeing herself in this moment as not worthy to approach Jesus. She just knows if I just touch his clothing, God will heal me. Jesus will heal me. But Jesus doesn't let it stay there. He calls her out for her faith, for her actions, because she could have just left. And she would have been healed. And that would have been great. It would have been, still been a miracle. But the people and her, they both needed to see what had transpired that day. And more than that, she still needed a savior. Even though her physical ailment had been destroyed, she must make the more important step of faith in following Jesus. Now, does she? Well, we don't see that said, like explicitly. Except Jesus has said, your faith has made you well, go in peace. So I'm going to say, that's a sign that, yeah, she's good. You can have all your debates on that. But we need to have that simple faith as well. If I just ask God for this, he can give it. Not because I'm the best, not because I'm the worst, but because he is who he says he is. And even if he doesn't, I will praise his name. We also see here, Jesus deliberately waited. That's why he makes a scene here, not only for this woman to profess what she has done and to follow him, but knowing the daughter would die before he got there. While healing the sick is miraculous, far, far more so is to raise someone from the dead. And he does so easily when he gets to the house without pomp and circumstance or as if it took no effort at all. Jesus deliberately waited so that God's power could be magnified to him, to the people, to this daughter, to Jairus, to everyone assembled there, to his three most closest disciples that he brings there with him. God allows bad things to happen for his power to be glorified. We live in a sinful, broken world. It's not fair. Well, guess what? Fair is the moment you and I sin, God strikes us down dead, we end up in hell for eternity. God is unfair, and that is good. I want an unfair God, because I know if God dealt with me fairly, I wouldn't, make, I wouldn't measure up. I'd be nothing. But because God is unfair, because God is loving, he gives us a chance that we don't deserve. And we see at the end here, like I mentioned earlier, unlike the Gentiles, Jesus commands them not to speak of what he's doing because he knows it will hinder his mission. Know your audience. And Jesus knows if they're going to spread this message, it's going to lead to bad things. So that's it for Luke 8. Guys, thank you again for joining me on this pro uh, project. I'm continuing to have a lot of fun diving into the scriptures with you verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This is just fun. This is just amazing. So please, if you're able to, if you'd like to, leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. It'll really help us increase with finding, reaching out to more people. 
I mean, somehow I met someone in Luxembourg. I don't know how that happened. Analytics being what they are, who knows? But they 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 found it thanks to you. You can also find me as a roundtable guest on the Whole Church Podcast and as one of the hosts of the Systematic Ecology Podcast. And speaking of both of those, if you were able from May 11th to the 13th to go to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to go to the Every Tribe Denomination and Tongue Convention, then I, my good friends, have a free promo code for you. The code is UNMOVED. That's all caps. UNMOVED. Which will give you $20 off your tickets. That's a heck of a deal. I hope to see you guys there. If you listen to the show, let me know while I'm there. I'll be one of the guest speakers. I'll be getting interviewed at one point in time for a different show. It's going to be a fun time. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can look me up uh, under starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then go out and check the My Seminary Life podcast hosted by Brandon Knight and the Buddy Walk With Me podcast hosted by Joe Day. You can also contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.